In my preaching and teaching, especially with young people now, to use the word sin is just not helpful. Now, there are some people who want to hold on to it because they think we've gone soft on sin. My whole point in theology and religion these days is if you keep using language that no one gets or no one understands what you're talking about, that ends up an ideology. That doesn't end up a dialogue about God at all. You've got to find the language And for my money, the word sin, the only word I use these days, particularly with young people, is destructiveness. And it says everything we say about sin, that sin destroys. It destroys me. It destroys my relationships. It can destroy other people. It can destroy my relationship with God. It's destructive. So, And it's not just destroying sinfulness in terms of some something personal, which was the way we used to almost always couch it, but it's destructive of the environment. Laudato si of Pope Francis, that we've got grave obligations to right relationships, constructive relationships with the created order. As an example of, you know, more social obligations to refugees, to the poor, to women who are in domestically violent situations, for instance. We are called to be in right relationships with those uh, people as well. Now, I think that that word destruction is really helpful So her sins, her destructiveness has been forgiven because she can show such such love. I think that's helpful for us too. The things that we do that are destroying us personally, communally, our relationships, our relationship with God, set them aside. They're not working. And then turn your life around with God's grace, which is the only way we can do it, and then walk into a more free future. And in my experience, just using the word destructiveness rather than the word sin which seem to me to be synonyms, theologically anyway, all of a sudden they get it. Oh, is that what that's all about? I've got it. Yeah. And then you can have a whole discussion about that in a way that doesn't come with the baggage that sometimes just the change of one word, finding another word for it can be so powerful in where you get to. Because I think what's good about it also is that it gets over this dilemma of people identifying who they are with the sin that I am a bad person. Whereas the big struggle for many and for modern young people, but also for older people, is the sense of really, real self-worth, you know, that I really am valuable, that I really am loved. When the sin comes in, it's almost like, but I'm really not a good person because I'm a sinner. And you talked about Ignatius saying, I'm a loved sinner. It's hard to hold those things together because very often, instead of sin being something that you may do, unconsciously very often, at least when you're saying it's a destructive thing, it's not your very essence of who you are. I, uh, I explore this in great detail in the, in the chapter on love God, love your neighbour, love yourself, called The Great Commandment. We've been good on love of God. We've got to get better. We've been good on love of neighbour. We must do better. The last one, we've got horribly confused. And I think all of Christianity, I don't think this is a Catholic thing. You know, I have a friend of mine, when we talk about guilt, for instance, and sin and guilt, I have a friend of mine who was the daughter of a wee free minister from Scotland and living in Australia. And she's a New Testament scholar in her own right, Professor Dorothy Lee. And she's a very dear friend of mine. And she says, I'm always cranky when I hear all these Catholics talk about Catholic guilt as though somehow they cornered the market. She said, you should have grown up the daughter of a wee free 
minister. She said, I used to look at my Catholic friends and they could go to dances and have a good time. They could sing, they could drink, and they had the St. Patrick's Day race meeting, for goodness sake. She said, we had all the sexual stuff that they had. We couldn't drink, we couldn't gamble, we couldn't dance. Um, She said, you know, I was guilty when I wasn't guilty. So she said, you know, it's interesting that right across the board, I think we have been very bad. I think we have overemphasized um, our role in um, uh, our destructive behavior. Um, So a couple of points to make. Firstly, Jesus didn't say when he said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. That imperative there indicates that you're not going to love your neighbor until you love yourself. That's a that's a fallout from that commandment, that until you truly love yourself, you're not going to truly love your neighbor because one is contingent on the other. That's from Jesus' lips, not my, my lips. Secondly, Jesus didn't say adore yourself. He said love yourself. And I think that's what we were anxious about. We thought that in putting yourself down that that was a good thing to do and feeling bad about yourself most of the time meant that you kept your place in the whole scheme of things. And for Jesus didn't say adore yourself or don't adore yourself. He said, love yourself. So we're anxious about adoration of self, which is actually a pathology. That means the world revolves around me and my life, my choices, my everything. That is in fact disordered. That's not right. Jesus says, love yourself. Now, I think uh, the people that the best example, and I give this in the book, for a very short time, I was the chaplain to a, uh, the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. And I, I never want to do that job again, not because it's not important work. I just found it absolutely, uh, it was very, very heart-wrenching every day to see kids who have been in accidents or dying and fine if they're getting well and going home. Great. Thanks be to God. But I was with lots of parents who were, children were dying and, um, or they were very seriously injured in car accidents and subsequently died or were very badly injured for the rest of their lives. Watching those parents every day want to be in that bed rather than that child, that's the sort of love that we're being called to. Because it's sacrificial love. The word sacrifice, I, I, I give, I unpack this in the book. The word sacrifice, very badly understood. Um, it comes from two Latin words, sacrum facere. Sacrum is sacred. You can hear that. Facere is to do. So it's to do the holy thing, to do the sacred thing. So sacrifice might denote always giving up something or paying a price or carrying across that might be true but the root word i think is rich actually it's to do holy things maybe to do a whole thing like the love i saw with those parents in intensive care units or in accident emergency units for their children was a holy love that was a sacrificial love and they would have traded places if they could have to save their child from going through it that's what i think jesus is talking about in that commandment that's what we're called to the other thing is about loving our neighbor as we love ourselves is the word humility. And again, I go into this in a little bit of detail. Humility, humilis, its root word is from humus in Hebrew, which means to be grounded. Um, some of us like a dip called humus, and it's it's got the same root word. And the chickpeas are grounded. It's actually not about chickpeas. It's about the grounding. It's about the process. When we say we're meant to be humble people, uh, in my life, I think or for a long time, it meant to be oh, not feeling I was any good or, you know, don't get above your station or don't think you're anything special. Well, you know, that's egotism. And that's true. That's got to keep we've got to keep a check on it. Humility does not say 
that we are of no account. Humility says that I'm a grounded person who knows I'm loved and therefore I can love others, which is what the commandment attends to. Love God, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So it's that sense of groundedness, being in touch with everybody's reality, including your own, that then extends the hand of compassion and love to other people. You know, if that's Christianity, bring it on. I want more of it. But that language just unpacks things which sometimes have been presented in very different ways, which have had shocking outcomes for some of the Christian community. Yet put some other words and a bit of learning and a few insights that we've got modern tools for in biblical studies and etymology and science and biology, other things, throw in things like that, historical critical analysis from Jesus' day with tax collectors, for instance. All of a sudden, these stories and the message that come out of them are immensely powerful. <laughs> 